Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This weekend, the church will celebrate Christmas together on Sunday, an odd occasion that only happens every seven years, roughly or so, but we do this year. And our Old Testament text is Isaiah chapter 52, verses 7 through 10. The epistle will be from Hebrews chapter 1. It'll be verses 1 through 6, but optionally, your pastor may also include verses 7 through 12. And then the gospel reading will be from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. And again, the option for your pastor to include verses 15 through 18 on that reading. So we begin in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 52, verses 7 through 10. We could call this a prelude to one of the four servant songs of Isaiah. Those are four sections where Isaiah talks about a servant of God who will come, who will suffer on behalf of the people to redeem them, to rescue them. Those songs can be found in chapter 42, verses 1 through 9, chapter 49, verses 1 through 13, chapter 50, verses 4 through 11, and chapter 52, verse 13, up through chapter 53, verse 12. And that's the one that this text is leading up to. It's all one paragraph, so here it is. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice, together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of Yahweh to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for Yahweh has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. Yahweh has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Honestly, this reads a little bit more like a Holy Week text than it does a Christmas text. But our purpose, our reason for its inclusion on Christmas Day together is the connection to John chapter 1. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. John 1 is going to talk about John the Baptist pointing to the coming, the arrival of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So, let's take a deeper look. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Beautiful feet would have been like an oxymoron. Uh, Two statements, two words that just don't go together. They didn't have closed-toed shoes as we do today. Most people walked around in sandals pretty much the majority of the day, perhaps barefoot at times. They didn't have paved roads and sidewalks to walk upon. And in the land of Israel, it was often a dirt road, even dirt floor within a home. So you can imagine how filthy people's feet would get. And this leads into the whole conversation in the New Testament about foot washing and how it's a, a dirty work that a servant does. It also leads into John the Baptist saying that he is not worthy to stoop down and even untie the sandals of the one who comes after him. That's a very humble thing that he's not even worthy to be the servant of that man. But here, Beautiful feet. Why? Well, it's because of what the feet have done. The feet have carried the messenger, and the messenger has brought good news. Good news of a Savior. Good news that sin has been defeated once and for all by God himself. That our death has been taken away, that the devil has been conquered, that we have life that never ends in this Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, that's what's coming up in a few verses if you continue reading Isaiah 52 together in your family. So John the Baptist is 
going to be this one with good news, beautiful feet as he preaches, as he paves the way for people to repent and hear of Jesus Christ, that their Savior has come. Note that this bringer of good news also really brings word of peace, word of salvation. The word publish as a verb there does not mean he is the one who makes the peace. It does not mean he is the one who delivers the salvation. But when we think of publishing today, right, you think of, in our circles, the Concordia Publishing House, they, pro- they provide resources. Somebody else wrote them. Somebody else made the resource, and then Concordia Publishing House makes it so that we can have it. So it is with... Really, I'm just going to back out and say missionary work entirely. And missionary comes from the the word sent in the original languages. We are missionaries, each and every one of us. God has sent us. This is you. You get to be verse 7 to the people around you, to your family, to your neighbors, to your co-workers, to your classmates. You get to have beautiful feet. As you bring good news, news of happiness, news of peace, news of salvation to others. All right, now let's zoom back in. Who says to Zion, that is to the holy city of Jerusalem, your God reigns. Jerusalem represents all of God's people as its capital city. But this is also the picture that, that this Savior is coming to Jerusalem. This is the beginning of seeing why it is not a Christmas text. Because Jesus does not come to Jerusalem at Christmas. Jesus comes into the world of the Incarnation nine months before Christmas. And at Christmas, he is born in Bethlehem. And then he is brought to Jerusalem for the first time, presumably, when he's 40 days old for the purification rites for his mother. This text ends up being much more about when Jesus triumphantly enters Jerusalem 33-ish years later. But we continue. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of Yahweh to Zion. This is the picture of the city. Picture of the ancient city. Walls around it. A city gate that has to be opened and closed for people to come and go. And you would post a watchman on a tower that they would look around, they could see into the distance to see who was coming. So they could give you advanced warning, both of good and bad, advanced warning if they saw a friend coming, but also advanced warning if they saw an enemy coming so that you could scramble together some fighters to defend your city and your home. Here, the watchman Well, they're lifting up their voice. They have seen something, but they have seen their Savior face to face, eye to eye. He's already there. They didn't see him coming, but he's here. This is the language of the New Testament, Jesus saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand or has come near, depending on your translation. He's Here, the return of Yahweh to Zion. God returning, so that's the idea that God had been there before, dwelling with his people in his temple. That temple was destroyed, it got rebuilt. The people's rejection of God, the temple, well, the temple stands during the intertestamental period, but the faithfulness of the people continues to waver. But now God comes to Jerusalem even in the flesh. He's here. Jesus Christ has come. Break forth 
together into singing. You waste places of Jerusalem. So that's a reversal. You have waste places, places that have been destroyed, devastated by enemy attack. Remember that Isaiah is writing this in around 700 BC. Jerusalem will yet be destroyed from his chronological perspective. In 587, they will be laid waste by the Babylonian Empire. This is a prophecy of restoration. That what has been removed, what has been broken down, will be rebuilt. Much like Jesus tells people that if they tear down the temple, he will rebuild it in three days. There he's talking about his body. That he will will rise from the dead. So Jerusalem indeed is redeemed in Jesus Christ. And so break forth into singing. Take that sorrow, take that sadness that everything was taken away and forget it. Undo it. You have been rescued. You have been redeemed. Your Savior has come. Yahweh has comforted his people. There is no greater comfort than Jesus Christ, our Lord, who takes away our sin, who takes away our death upon the cross. He has redeemed Jerusalem. He's made it his. He's bought it back for himself by his own most precious blood. And that gets us to verse 10. And ultimately why, again, this is a fantastic text for Holy Week. But as a hymn of praise about our Savior, it's good for any day of any week. Yahweh has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. The picture here is actually one that works quite well with our movie-watching, action-war-film-loving kind of age, where you see the the warrior draw their sword and and point their sword at their enemy with their stretched-out arm. That's the kind of picture that you want to have in mind here, that Yahweh has bared... That is, he has he's stretched it out, and now you can see his bare arm, right? He can see it because it's no longer underneath his robe or his tunic, his garment. He's laid it bare to fight, to do battle, again, against sin, death, and the devil for us, and for it to be in the presence of before the eyes of all nations, that all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. This is no secret. God is not doing this in the middle of nowhere for no one to know. But he has every intention, every plan to make it known to every nation under heaven. For there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. But as we think of God bearing his arm, stretching out his arm to fight. There's not a sword in that arm, but a nail, piercing it through into the wood of the tree, a cross. In fact, then, it is not just one outstretched arm that God has laid bare, but two stretched out, not pointing towards the enemy, but stretched out side to side as far as the east is from the west. The sword pierced himself. God takes on our sin, the very thing he came to fight and conquer and destroy and defeat, and he takes it upon himself. He bears that burden on our behalf. He overcomes an enemy that you and I were not strong enough to defeat. He has done it for you. And not only for you, he has done it for all people, for all nations. 
This is indeed a hymn of praise. And I would encourage you to continue your reading and, and read the rest of Isaiah 52 and into and through 53. Read the servant's song and see how very clearly it points you to Jesus Christ and his crucifixion, to his suffering that he endured for you, by which he has redeemed you, by which he has given you peace with God, by which he has brought you happiness that the world cannot destroy or take away, by which he has brought you salvation. How beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news. This is your story. This is your Savior. And you, like John the Baptist before us, and so many others, you get to share it. Because your God reigns. The epistle reading from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, and optionally also verses 7 through 12. We don't see much of the book of Hebrews in year A, We'll see more of it in other years, but with this being the very introduction to the book, it's worth noting a little bit about the book. We, we don't know much. We know it's written in that New Testament era, 50s, 60s, 70s, that kind of a thing. In fact, I would rule out the 70s there and just push it to the 50s or 60s because the preacher to the Hebrews, I say preacher because it reads like a sermon, He, he speaks as though the temple in Jerusalem still stands, that the sacrifices are still being done, that the priests are still there doing their daily duties. The temple is destroyed in 70 AD. So a date in the 60s seems probable. And then the idea that we don't know who wrote this. The only book in the New Testament that we don't know who the author is. You will often hear it said to be Paul. If you read through the epistle in its fullness, though, looking for the, with the mindset, the intentionality of, did Paul write this? You'll find a couple of phrases that will, that will help you to see that it wasn't Paul. Barnabas is suggested by some, Apollos by others. We, we just don't know. But what we do is the, the theme here of Hebrews is so abundantly clear. Jesus is better, greater, superior. We're going to see it in our text today. Superior to the prophets, superior to the angels. He is the better high priest. He is superior to Moses. He's going to give us a better covenant a better promise, a better sacrifice, a better life, a better home, a better country. Hey, just, just do a, a word search in your fi favorite Bible app for the word better and then focus in on the book of Hebrews alone and see all the better things Christ gives. And it's not just the word better. You can do greater, uh, superior, and ESV only shows up in Hebrews, including in our text for the day. But it's just a common theme that runs all the way through. There's a lot of beauty in this epistle, even if we don't know which apostle wrote it. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So the letter starts, the sermon starts, with the idea that in the past God spoke by the prophets. 
long ago, many times, many ways. So the whole Old Testament era, and the people of the New Testament refer to the Old Testament not as the Old Testament because they don't know they're going to be called the New Testament yet. They refer to it as the Law and the Prophets. Jesus is better than the Law and the Prophets, greater than. It's not to say Jesus is greater than the Old Testament because Jesus is in the Old Testament. Jesus points out that the entirety of the Old Testament points to him, all of Scripture, God breathed. But in the Old Testament era, in those times, God spoke to his people over thousands of years through dreams, through visions, through direct revelations as he would appear to them, like he does to Moses at Mount Sinai or at the burning bush, which is also Mount Sinai. He speaks to them through his prophets. He speaks to them through his written word when we think of the king who discovers the the scriptures buried in a box in the temple when they're repairing it. They read the word of God and they repent. So God spoke to our fathers, that is, the people of faith who came before us. He spoke to them by his prophets through men like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Amos. So many prophets, not just the ones we know by name either. There are others in scripture too. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So in the past, he did it this way. Now he does it this way. In the past, through the prophets. Now, through Jesus. This is why, as Christians today, within the Lutheran Church, we're not out there looking for new revelation. We're not out there looking for for dreams and visions that God will tell us to do a certain thing at a certain time. In these last days, which refers to the time of Christ's ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, all the way up until Christ's return, On the last day, the last day, we are in that era now. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. We have everything we need to know. This is Revelation chapter 5, the scroll that is written on both sides, but yet sealed. And they cry out, who is worthy to open the scroll? That scroll is God's plan of salvation. That it is written front and back on both sides of the scroll means that it is full. There is no more room for writing. Nothing can be added to that plan of salvation. It is his. And then Jesus, the lamb who was slain and yet stands, because he's risen, he comes and he opens that sealed scroll. And he makes the plan of salvation known to us. We don't need further revelation. You have everything that you need to know. You know that God created you and all people. You know that God loves you and cares for you and provides for you. You know that you are a sinner who has rebelled against the Lord, and yet you know that Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior has taken your sins away by his death on the cross. You know that he has promised to return and that when he returns, he will raise you from the dead and take you to be with himself forever, body and soul reunited. This is his word. This is his promise. And in the meantime, how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. He's given us work to do. We are called. We are sent. We are to love God. We are to love our neighbor. And that's it. We do that each day. We do that every day. Until either Christ returns or we die. It is as the Apostle Paul said in his opening to the Philippians, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I live, if the Lord grants me another day today, I will spend my day serving him.
loving him, loving my neighbor, bringing good news to those around me, that they too may know of Christ and his love for them. If I don't get another day, if today is my last, thanks be to God, it is gain, for I will be with him. My suffering, my pain, my affliction, my despair, ended, gone, done away with, and I get to rest in the arms of my Savior. To die is gain, the apostle said and meant. So it is. God has spoken to us by his Son. You have everything that you need to sustain you for this day and every day. For man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Now, this son, God appointed the heir, H-E-I-R, of all things. The heir is the one who inherits. We see this in 1 Corinthians 15, that God the Father subjects all things unto Christ, making even his enemies a footstool for his feet. The last enemy to be defeated, destroyed, is death. He is the heir of all things. All belongs to Christ. Through whom also he created the world. And this is a great tie-in to our gospel reading from John chapter 1, where we will also see that it is through Christ, it is in Christ that God created We oftentimes limit creation to the Father in the way we speak, and that's simply not true. Genesis 1, you see the Spirit present, hovering above the waters. But again, Hebrews 1 and John 1, very clear texts that proclaim that Jesus Christ created all things. The Trinity remains beyond our full comprehension, but again, what we have been given is enough. The Scriptures, the Holy Word, the Word of Christ, points us to God's plan for our salvation. And when that day comes, when the last day comes, when Christ returns and this body is raised imperishable, immortal, and glorified, well, then you can ask him questions if you'd like. How does the Trinity work? But at that point, we will see him eye to eye, face to face. Who knows if we'll even need to ask questions anymore. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Radiate points us to the idea of light, which we'll pick up on in John's Gospel account for sure today. To radiate is to give off light. He is the radiance of God's glory, so he shows forth the glory of God. That is the reason why God should be lifted up, the reason why the world should look to God. Jesus shines that reason forth. Jesus is that reason as he dies on the cross to forgive our sins. This goes back to Isaiah 52 that he publishes peace, brings good news, publishes salvation, that our God reigns. He is also the exact imprint of his nature. This, again, Trinitarian language. When we think of an imprint, we might think of uh, a carving of some kind that is then pressed into wax, clay, or some other moldable material to make a reproduction of something. It's not quite the way we want to take this with the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit alike uncreated. The Father did not create the Son, as we'll see in John 1 very clearly. They have been together always. And so we should read this focusing probably more in English on that exact word. 
that Jesus is the exactness of God himself. The Athanasian Creed would be a a fitting text here as you talk about throughout that creed how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together are of the same substance, co-eternal, all those, those kinds of phrases. Then Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. That verse alone is worthy of so much reflection. We can go back to creation itself, to that week where God created. How did God make the heavens and the earth? He made all things simply by speaking. On day one, he said, let there be light. And there was light. He speaks light into existence. He speaks and the sun, the moon, and the stars are there. He speaks and we have the heavens and the seas and the land. He speaks and we have the animals and the birds and the, and the plants and all sorts of living things. He speaks and things happen. Now he speaks and the universe is upheld. We think of how vast the universe is, far beyond our reach, far beyond our understanding, and yet Jesus, by speaking, holds it all together. This is one of those things that makes me confident to speak and to teach against the the climate change fear that we see in our culture around us. It's been a few years already since our politicians tried to teach us that if we didn't change our ways within 12 years, the entire world would perish. A doomsday clock, if you want to call it that. How prideful is it? How prideful of us sinful man to think that we can destroy something that Jesus himself is holding together. If Jesus is holding the universe together, it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how many nuclear bombs I throw. Jesus, by the power of his word, by his speaking, holds it together. I cannot undo that. That's not to say that in my sin I'm not still broken. It's not to say that in my sin I'm not still harming God's creation, that I'm not still doing evil things. It's not to say that we shouldn't care for God's creation. It's part of why he made us, if you go back to Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the seas, the birds of the heavens, beasts of the field. We were placed here to be caretakers, to work the garden, and to care for the animals. That task hasn't changed. Now it's been added to that we get to share the good news that our Savior reigns. So as Christians, we can, in some ways, talk about that climate change reality. We can talk about we have been called to be stewards, that we're here to care for it. But at the same time, we don't have to fear it. We don't have to fear the the lies and the, the propaganda that gets spewed all around us because we know Jesus reigns. We know Christ is in control. And it is ultimately his word that holds things together. If Jesus stopped speaking, all of this would come undone. He is... Oh, bad analogy. He's the glue that holds it all together. It's like one of those three-dimensional puzzle things. I've never been any good at those. You take the one piece out and the whole thing falls apart, and you can never figure out how to get it back together again. Jesus is that piece that holds it all together. His word. 
he in, he upholds the entire universe by the power of his word. And he also sustains us. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And we have that word. We have that promise of forgiveness, life, and salvation. And that promise upholds us and gives us reason to get out of bed each day, knowing that we are his. And knowing that we have a purpose in this place. After making purification for sins, so the pointing to the cross, that he takes away our sins from us, he purifies us from sin, makes us pure, makes us righteous. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, a reference to his ascension that came 40 days later. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father. The right hand, again, much like the, the phrase his holy arm being bared in the Isaiah text before, your right hand is the hand you fight with. The left-handedness was an extremely rare thing in the ancient world. I'm not exactly sure why it's become more common today. But in the ancient world, you were right-handed, pretty much everybody. And so to sit at God's right hand is a show of his power, his strength, his importance. It is, in a way, why we still have that phrase um, when we're talking about an assistant to somebody saying that they are their right-hand man, like his second in, in command. Except Jesus is not second in command so much as he is heir of all things and reigns together with his father. He has become superior to the angels. Now, there's a line that might give some pause. The preacher is going to pick up on it later in the book, but essentially he became man. That's the point at which he is inferior to the angels, and I caution even in saying that. It is the idea that Jesus humbled himself and took on flesh. But now, having ascended to the right hand of the Father, he has taken his spot back upon his throne. So he steps down from his throne and he humbles himself, submits himself under the the care of Joseph and Mary. So he's literally under the angels when you look at it, you know, from a geographic perspective, as they are above but he is now above them. He was never inferior to them in terms of his godhood, but as a reference to his, again, humility. His name, which is inherited, given to him by the Father, is more excellent than their name. Think of the names of the angels that we know. There's only two. Michael, whose name means in Hebrew, who is like God? And Gabriel, whose name means God is my strength. But the name of Jesus entirely different. So their names point to God. Jesus' name reveals that he is God. In the Old Testament, the divine name that is revealed to us to call God by is Yahweh, which in Hebrew means he is. God speaks to Moses at the burning bush and says, I am who I am. Ehweh asher ehweh. I am. And then we respond, he's to tell the people of Israel who sent him, Yahweh, the God of your fathers the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Yahweh, he is. And our calling of God's name is a very reference to his existence. It is a confession of our faith to say it. But then when we come to the New Testament, in the very beginning of it, Matthew chapter 1 already, God gives us a new name by which to call him. You shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus comes from the Hebrew name Joshua, Yeshua, from the Hebrew verb Yeshua, to save. 
Jesus means he saves. So God's name tells us who he is. God's name tells us what he has done for us. And after we see the name Jesus, we actually never see the name Yahweh in Scripture again. It is the most common word in the Old Testament when you don't count things like the, and, and an, or a pronoun like he. Most common word in all the Old Testament, 7,000 times it shows up roughly, vanishes entirely from the text of the New Testament. And instead we have the name Jesus. The name by which we are saved. The angels don't do that. The angels' names point to God. God's name shows us who he is. So he has even a superior name. I left that off the list earlier. We continue our text, verses 5 through 6. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So in order to show his audience, his hearers, us today, that Jesus is superior to the angels, he's going to point out several Old Testament passages in a row. God never spoke to his angels this way, but he did speak of Jesus this way. Psalm 2, verse 7, You are my son, today I have begotten you. He is the Son of God. The angels aren't, although the phrase sons of God does get used of them in the book of Job. But Jesus is his son. A direct reference. The idea of begotten, that's one of those words in the study of the Trinity that baffles us. Jesus is of the Father. He is one with the Father. For a father to beget a son is the idea that the son has come from the Father. That they are of the same blood, the same kin. We do not believe that Jesus Christ was created. We do not believe that the Father somehow produced and gave birth to the Son, that there was a time when the Son was not. But we do believe that they are one, one God and three persons, and that somehow there is this relationship, this hierarchy between them, that God the Father, that he is the head of the Trinity, and that Jesus Christ is his Son, and that even on the last day, when God the Father subjects all things unto, unto his Son, Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 15 that the Father is accepted from that. The Father is not subjected to the Son. The very baffling language in the late 20s of the verses. The second quote here in verse 5, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son, is from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, that spot where God is promising to King David that one of his descendants will sit on his throne in Jerusalem forever. He will be a son of God. Then verse 6, quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43, when he brings the firstborn into the world. Firstborn is going to connect us to the Old Testament idea of the heir, the, the one who would inherit. So Jesus, as the Son of God, is the firstborn. And literally then from Mary's womb. But he is the heir, is the emphasis of that. And so of him, God commands the angels to worship him. We know that we are to worship God alone. The angels in John's writing in the book of Revelation will specifically tell John that, not to worship them. They'll say it to him twice, but that we worship God alone. So Jesus is God. That's the end of the text for those of you who don't get the optional, the additional six verses, but we'll look into those now. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. This is a quote from Psalm 104, verse 4. And if you back up just a verse there into verse 3, it would talk about really God's chariot, 
And so the picture here is that the angels, his ministers, are like his chariot almost. That they are inferior beneath him to the point where they, like a, a group of men would carry their king on their shoulders, they bear him. He is their king. Verse 8 and 9, But of the Son he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So a shift. These are the things he's been speaking of the angels, but now he speaks about his Son. And he quotes from Psalm 45, verse 6, that God said this of his Son, Your throne, O God, referring to Jesus, reigns forever, endures forever. The scepter is a symbol of a king's power and authority. His scepter, his authority, is upright and it lasts forever. His reign is righteous. It is good. He has loved righteousness and hated wickedness. So he's loved good, hated evil. Therefore, God, your God, again, God the Father, God the Son, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. To be anointed with oil was what was done for prophets, priests, and kings. Jesus is all three. He is the better prophet. He is the better priest. He is the better king. Again, references that you'll pick up on here in the book of Hebrews. He is our prophet, that he speaks God's word to us. Hebrews 1, right? The idea that he has spoken to us by his son in these latter days. He is our priest. That he intercedes between God and men and he does so by the, the sacrifice. But for him, it's his own sacrifice as he laid down his own life to save us. It is his blood that atones for us. And then the better king. That doesn't take much to see. The kings of this world are broken and frail, filled with anger and greed, but not Christ. He is a true king who, instead of looking after his own interests, cares for his people, puts his people's needs before his own. And lastly, verses 10 through 12 are a citation from Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. This rejoices in the eternity of God, that he is from the beginning, that he made all things, and that he will always endure, that the creation that we inhabit now will not. It is but a garment. So you think of the clothing you're wearing today. What will you do at the end of the day with it? You'll take it off. You'll roll it up and toss it in the laundry. Into your hamper, into the washing machine. You'll get it cleaned again. You can look at creation that way. Or you can look at the, the garment that you have that wears out. What do you do with your shirt when it starts to get holes in it? You throw it away. It's done away with. This creation will perish. It is temporary, but God is eternal. And he is preparing now a new heaven and a new earth, by the way. And Jesus has promised he will come back to take us to be with him where he is. That day comes. A better country. A better promise. A better life. Thanks be to God. This brings us now to the Gospel reading, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, and optionally, the addition of verses 15 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, 
was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, if that's not enough to tell you and show you that the word is Jesus, jump down to verse 14. We'll do that one real quick. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, God the Son, took on flesh, the incarnation, allowed himself to be humbled to the point where he was placed as a tiny speck inside of the womb of the Virgin Mary so that he could grow, so that he could fulfill the law that we ourselves have failed to keep, so that he could then die on the cross in our place, dying the death that you and I deserve in order that we might live. Verse 14 certainly does it if you couldn't tell from the first five verses that Jesus is the word. So let's now go back to verses 1 through 5. I do think there's enough here that you can tell without verse 14's help, but we have it all, so thanks be to God. In the beginning was the word. Jesus has always been. He's not created. That's all you need right there. The word was with God. The word was God. Jesus is God. Again, that's all you need. This has been refuted, argued against throughout the history of this New Testament era. The last couple thousand years, many have come along to say Jesus isn't God. Many today try to say that Christians never believed that, that that's like a fourth century invention. The Christians started to say Jesus is God. Well, that's historically inaccurate. Um, Here's a document written at the end of the first century. We have copies of this dating to the second century that claims Jesus is God. We know from a Roman official and historian by the name of Pliny the Younger that the Christians were worshiping Jesus as God in the first century. So the argument that Christians have made this up is just silly. But it exists. It's out there. It's around us. You'll hear it. So be prepared to hear it. Jesus was in the beginning with God. So again, not made. Verse 3 is going to stress that too. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So here's your argument against the the 4th century heretic Arius, who claimed that Jesus was the first created being. Nothing was made that was not made through him by him. If Jesus was created, he could not have created himself. The Father would have created him, in which case this statement of Scripture would no longer be true. So we can confidently teach and believe and confess that Jesus Christ is and always was, as the Hebrews author will proclaim that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is God. He is eternal. He has no beginning and he has no end, and for that we rejoice. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. It makes me think of God breathing the breath of life into Adam in the beginning. But we also, as Christians, know that apart from Christ, we have no life. And the New Testament does speak that way. For example, Matthew chapter 25, talking about the separation of the sheep and the goats on the last day, those who believe and those who don't, that they are all raised All of us are raised on the last day when Christ returns, and the sheep, those who believe, are raised to life, whereas the goats, those who don't believe, are raised to judgment. It uses that language, raised to life, raised to judgment. They're both raised. But if you have not Christ, you have not life, because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You you only have sin and despair and death And hell is the second death of John's writing in the book of Revelation. The life was the light of men. He is our light, which then is verse 5. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Thus, Revelation speaks of paradise as having no sun, S-U-N, because God himself gives the city its light. 
and the darkness cannot overcome that. Dark cannot overcome light. Right? Think of a darkened room. It's dark because light isn't there. But what happens when you flip the switch? Light overcomes darkness. Jesus is the light of the world. And his light, his truth, his good news overcomes Satan and all evil and gives us life. John 8, verse 12, I'm the light of the world. 1 John, the idea of light and darkness, will become a major theme in that book. It's a, it's a theme here in this one as well. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. In short, these three verses are about John the Baptist and his role, that he came to point people to Jesus, to bear witness, so that others may hear the good news. He's not the light. John was not the Savior. People asked him that. They wondered. But he came to bear witness. He came to point to, testify of, Jesus. Many might wonder if this John in verse 6 is a reference to the author, John the disciple, John the apostle, and it is not. It is John the Baptist. John the apostle, as he writes this letter, does not identify himself by name. He likes to, prefers to refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loves. The name of John, John himself, the author, John's not important. Christ is, and he seeks to point you to Christ in all things. Verse 9 and following, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So Jesus, the true light, gives light to everyone. That is, he gives his forgiveness, life, and salvation to all people. Was coming into the world. Was, past tense, because he's already come. And this is a reference to his incarnation, but all the way up really through even his baptism, that time where he begins that earthly ministry and begins sharing his light with others. He was in the world. So he's in his creation. He's not absent. He's not a distant God. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Be like a child saying that they don't know their parents. It would be like a pot, a piece of clay, saying it didn't know its creator. God made us. Jesus made us. And yet, even though he came to his own people, he came to those he created. He came to his people that he had called to be his own in the Old Testament, the, the Jews. And they rejected him. They did not receive him. This reminds us of when Jesus goes to Nazareth, that a prophet would be despised in his own hometown. It reminds us again of the Jewish people as they chant, crucify him, crucify him on Good Friday. But to all who did receive him, which includes both Jew and Gentile alike, people from every nation under heaven, all who believe in his name, he saves, remember, that's what Jesus means, everybody who believes that Jesus is their Savior, who rescues them from sin and death and the devil, he gives the right to become children of God. I should say he gave the right, past tense, you are a child of God. And this is a major theme that John will pick up on as well. You'll definitely see it in 1 John where he says that we are children of God multiple times within just a span of a couple of verses at the start of chapter 3. But John 3 as well, as Jesus will speak to Nicodemus, that you must be born again. And that's what this last bit gets at. Who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God. Born not of blood. So not earthly birth, not family relationships, not I have the blood of my father flowing through my veins. Not the will of the flesh, distinct from the will of man, 
So the will of man might be taken in a positive sense then, the idea that, you know, as a, a husband comes together with his wife intending to have a family, that sort of a thing, they're, they're hoping for a child. The will of the flesh then might be simply the sinful nature and we think of all those children conceived outside of the family relationship of a husband and wife because of our passions. This is a birth not of those things, not of blood, not of flesh, not of man. This is a birth from God. And this again, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus a couple of chapters from here, you must be born again of water and the Spirit. Nicodemus doesn't understand and asks if he have to crawl back into his mother's womb to be born again. Mothers probably don't like that text, um, even the picture of it. But Jesus, again, you must be born again. Water in the Spirit is a reference to baptism, that we are called to be his people. We are made, adopted to be his sons in the water and the word given by God. We've already done verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. But a reminder here, the word dwelt in Greek is tabernacled, which is just a fun picture. It turns a, a noun into a verb, which is always cool to do grammatically. But the idea in the tabernacle of the Old Testament, it was God's house in the midst of his people. They camped all around it in the Old Testament. He was in their center. He was in their midst. Everything focused on him. He was dwelling with them. Now in Jesus Christ, in the flesh, in the world, that has happened directly. He has tabernacled with us. He has been God in our midst with us, Emmanuel. We have seen his glory. Again, Christ lifted up. To glorify is to lift something up. To to talk about one's glory is to talk about the reason to look to them. We have seen his glory. He is our creator. He is our redeemer. He is our sustainer. He is full of grace and truth. Grace, the gifts that he gives, forgiveness, life, salvation, truth, he is the truth. Everything he speaks is truth, and it is by speaking that he upholds this universe, as we remember from the book of Hebrews. All right, our optional reading is verses 15 through 18. So let me add those on quickly here, and we'll wrap with this. John bore witness about him. And cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So again, we go back to John the Baptist, who pointed all people to Jesus said, he who comes after me ranks before me. This is the idea, um, almost spatially, that Jesus follows John. John appears on the scene first and starts baptizing, teaching, but then points people to Jesus who comes next. Um, Time and space really going on there. And yet, he ranks before John. He is of greater importance. He is superior to John. Why? Because he was before him. Chronologically, you might think, well, Jesus isn't before John. He's born like six months afterwards, but he is because Jesus is eternal. John is created. Jesus is not. Even before Jesus took on flesh and came into this world to save us and redeem us, Jesus has always been. John is recognizing that very fact. From his fullness, so his mission of salvation, we have received grace upon grace. The mission's been carried out. Christ came, Christ died, Christ rose again. Our sins are forgiven, and we have received grace upon grace. How many times have you been forgiven? How many times have you been forgiven, then gone out and committed the same sin again of thought, word, and deed? Christ forgives us over and over and over again. His grace is overflowing. I mean, you picture the cup and you just keep pouring water into it and it's just making a mess. It's going everywhere. That's God's grace upon us. We are so overfilled with his love and forgiveness and life that we can share it with others. To go back to the beautiful feet of Isaiah 52. The law was given through Moses. We learned what God expected of us, but we came short. We failed. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So we learn the way of salvation. We learn of the gifts of God. We learn of his forgiveness. We learn of his promises from Jesus. Verse 18 concludes us today that no one has ever seen God. That's a reference to the Father. 
the only God who is at the Father's side, so Jesus, he has made him known. So Jesus makes the Father known to us. Even though we have not seen the Father, Jesus points us to the Father. He brings us home. He reconciles us, gives us peace, which was, again, Isaiah 52 and is a major theme of the Christmas season. Peace on earth in the Christ child. And with that, a blessed Christmas to you all. Your Savior has come. Your Savior reigns. Come.